Kia ora koutou and welcome in to another lockdown edition of Formation, the podcast version of a real life conversation. And uh, we have now exited level four and we're into level three. So well done us. Uh, for some of us, maybe this means significant change. And then for many of us, I guess it's life as it has been under level four, uh, except maybe now you get to wait for an hour and a queue for McDonald's if that's your jam. Um, but whatever, look, whatever your situation, I hope you're well and continuing to look after each other and that you're doing okay. Uh, and we've been doing this formation series in lockdown and uh, we've been looking at the story of the Bible. And one of the things I've suggested so far in the couple of episodes that we've done on this is that ultimately what the Christian scriptures are inviting us into is this deep conversation and reflection or series of reflections really on meaning, on humanness, on what we think about God. And and really what we're doing there is we're talking about what is most real, you know, what sits at the core of things, what what is really going on here, I guess, as far as we can tell. And how does that shape and reshape the way we think about the world that we live in, the way that we think about ourselves and, and kind of what the point is. And um, one of the things we mentioned as we looked at the Old Testament is that there's this, it's this collection of very ancient writings uh, that offer a range of ways of thinking about God and about humanness and about the way that life is. And this is all kind of wrapped up in the way that, that ancient Israel tells their own story and they tell their own story uh, from a place of suffering. And so they, you know, the story doesn't have kind of the smoothed out arc of an empire that's kind of narrating its own glorious rise. It it contains all of the complexity of a story of those who are still trying to figure out what it is to be them. And so within the story, there is this ongoing tension, this ongoing conversation, trying to make sense of their reality. Uh, we might even say it's a kind of argument about what God is like, about why they find themselves in the situation that they do. Uh, and so you have these quite you know, typical ancient ways of seeing God as the one who conquers enemies on your behalf or you conquer enemies on God's behalf, whichever way around it goes, or usually it's a bit of both. Uh, the God, maybe he'll bless you if you do all the right things and curse you if you don't, or the God who wants to uphold your kings and kingdoms and empires. So you have those quite typical ancient messages about uh, meaning about life, about God and the gods. But interestingly, in the story of Israel, and this is something I've tried to touch on as we go along, there are these subversive prophetic voices in the story as well that keep suggesting that there might be a different way to see things, that that maybe, maybe that kind of standard way of seeing reality in the ancient world isn't the only way to see things. And I, and I do wonder whether their experience of suffering and loss and of pain and of telling their story from this place helps them to maintain or to sustain those subversive voices in the midst of their story. And these, I think, these voices help to move the story forward uh, instead of just a continuing reflection around the same core ideas and sort of reiterating them. There's this, there's this movement in the story forward offering different pathways into ways of seeing and being in the world. And um, and what this is kind of doing for us now, even though it's such an ancient conversation, and in many respects the, the experiences they're talking about seem so far from our reality, yet in many respects they're kind of the same. They're the same human struggles. And as we read stories of those who have 
engaged in this conversation in the thousands of years prior to us. In some, in some way, we're given language and we're given story to help us make sense of the conversation for ourselves too, to give us words and symbols and ideas and a tradition to engage with rather than simply you know, waking up one morning and trying to put our finger to the wind and imagine up a way of thinking about God and what it means to be human. And so uh, this can then play a really important role in our life now as we continue to engage in this conversation and see ourselves as a part of the ongoing wrestle, the ongoing argument, if you like, uh, in a positive sense, perhaps. And so, you know, we, sometimes we see the way that religious people in the Old and, and New Testaments actually are inclined to use God to justify their own violence, for example, or maybe to explain why certain people were suffering and it must be God punishing people or it's all part of God's plan or whatever it might be. Um, and we're able to say, I think, that because in the Christian story of Jesus, I think we see those ideas of God rejected. We're actually able to look at those same ideas play out now and continue to reject them, grounded in this kind of narrative of, of Jesus, rather than being confused by them or starting to think, oh, yeah, maybe God was punishing those people over there or punishing me, or maybe I haven't lived up to whatever it is I thought I should have lived up to, and that's why this is happening for me. You know, we're offered an invitation into some other ways of thinking about life and meaning and God. So in the last episode, we looked at the Jesus story and, and how Jesus takes up this conversation, but continues that prophetic tradition, really, of subverting the power structures and the power games. You know, So he comes as Israel's Messiah, um, but he comes in, in this way that rejects the power and status models of kingship and, uh, and instead invites a kingdom that is, you know, it's all up the wrong way. It's the upside-down kingdom. That's what we've been calling it. And so he prioritizes all the wrong people. He includes all, you know, all the people from the wrong sides of the tracks, so to speak. Um, and and so there's this participation in his own tradition and story, the story of Israel, but in a way where he he sides with, if you like, with certain depictions and understandings of God and rejects others. And, and so this way of being unfolds in Jesus' life that's, that suggests that a life of meaning is not captured in conquest or in some kind of accomplishment uh, or status of power or wealth, uh, and nor is it captured in religious rightness or holiness or exclusionary systems of belief, you know, and, and perhaps the temptation, if you want to be a religious person who rejects all of that kind of conquest power wealth stuff is to instead um, put yourself in kind of a religious zone of rightness and holiness um, because you don't dabble in the things of the world but what you do is you kind of recreate your own little system of in and out and status and power but within the religious bubbles that you find yourself in sorry to use the the bubble word there in a different context um, and and so both of those temptations are, are laid bare for us, actually, in the New Testament, the, the temptations towards conquest and, and, and status and power, kind of in the more statewide sense that you see in the political powers of the New Testament, but also uh, the religious temptation to set up systems of inclusion and exclusion as a way of trying to be right and on the inside. And so Jesus really flips all of those ways of being upside down and on their heads and and this, the the invitation here is to say that maybe the greatest sense of meaning is found actually in the giving up of those things in order to prioritize relationship and love and the inclusion of those on the margins and the edges and so on and 
and there's something deeply challenging still about that message. There's something still that cuts to the heart of uh, what we think so often is meaningful versus what truly is meaningful. And that's a conversation I want to continue to have, I guess, unfold in my own life. As I continue to be lured and tempted into all sorts of, into pursuing all sorts of things that ultimately um, are damaging to myself and to, and to others. So, in this episode, then what I want to reflect on is is the next part of the story, and, and this is the final episode in this trilogy on the story of the Bible. And uh, and so I want to reflect on uh, what happens in the wake of this Jesus story uh, among the people that tried to follow this Jesus, and especially try to follow Jesus after Jesus has gone. Uh, so it's one thing to follow Jesus around on his dusty trails in, in uh, first century Palestine. Uh, but what do you do once Jesus has um, disappeared? How, what, what happens when you're not quite sure what the next step is? Um, and so what do they do? What, what unfolds? And, and how could this continue to help us think about life and meaning and humanness and maybe even make a bit of sense of, of what church is about. And so there are two things I want to focus on for today before I offer maybe just a couple of closing reflections. And um, what, what we see take place. So we have, so we have Jesus, um, the Gospels obviously tell the story of the, the birth, life, death and resurrection of the Christ. And then um, following this story, and this kind of there's this curious mystical kind of mysterious ending to the story, which is often called the ascension of Jesus, where he sort of he he does a bit of a wazoo trick and and disappears in, into the clouds or somewhere, um, and his followers are kind of left standing around, um, and they go to Jerusalem and they wait, and and then what kind of happens over the the coming years is this small band of followers. You know, the story follows them as they begin to try and take this upside-down kingdom of God that Jesus embodied so beautifully and profoundly and powerfully and expand it, and they try to live it out and see others become a part of this different way of being as well. And they talk about this whole process, this whole pursuit, as in some way being enlivened or empowered by the divine spirit. So so their sense is that whatever kind of um, divine spirit was at work uh, motivating, inspiring, and compelling Jesus to live and act in the way that he did was also present somehow among them also, and that that meant that it was possible for them to also pursue this calling, this unique way of seeing the world and living in the world and treating one another. And so... You know, quite early on in their story, one of the things we see them begin to do is to sell all their possessions, for example, which is quite radical behavior, and to bring the proceeds together into kind of a church collective so that all of those who are struggling, who are poor, who are in need, uh, will be provided for and looked after. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a radical kind of set of behaviors that we see them start to, to live out. And... Um, and they are, you know, this small band of um, of Jewish Christians initially in this small little pocket of the Roman Empire. And maybe it seems obvious to us now, but at the time, you know, the Roman Empire is powerful, is violent, is um, 
is all over the known world. You know, you, you couldn't conceive of life beyond the Roman Empire at the time when this is unfolding. And the Roman Empire had certain ways of seeing reality, certain ways of telling you to see reality, certain ways that life should go, certain rules to live by. And they kind of, what starts here amongst these, among these followers is this daring suggestion that life could be different to that. And that although the political and the religious systems of the day functioned and this, this is this is you know in continuation with with the Jesus story although the political and religious systems function to keep people in their place to uphold the status quo of power and and so on that that perhaps we could try something different and that we could try something different and, and the confidence they seem to gain from this symbol of resurrection that they see in the Jesus story says that this trying of something different is not some weird kooky idea, but is in fact most in tune with the way things really are. And so although we might have an empire telling us things are one way, and it might almost seem silly to propose a different way of being, uh, this the, the experience of the risen Christ tells them that ultimately if they pursue this different kind of life, they are living more deeply connected to the way things really are, are deep beneath the surface of things. So that kind of deep-seated conviction that they have means that some of them early on are willing to sell all of their possessions so that if there are any in need among them, they'll be provided for, they'll be looked after. Uh, and once again, they prioritise inclusion over religious regulations. And um, they challenge the religious exclusionary systems uh, that they see around them, and that draws the ire and anger of, again, of those with religious status and power. Um, but they begin to reach out beyond themselves. And so we see in the stories of someone like Philip that an Ethiopian eunuch, you know, a, a non-Jewish person who's also a eunuch, which the Torah, you know, expressly suggests or claims cannot enter into the assembly of God. This eunuch, uh, through the ministry of Philip, is introduced to the story of Jesus and baptized then and there and goes away somehow enlivened by this same spirit and compelled to now follow this Jesus too. And so there's this expansion of the story beyond those to whom it should be limited to by all sort of normal regulations. And so uh, what we see then over the coming sort of years uh, and it does take quite a bit of time. Sometimes we lose the perspective of that time when we read the story. But, you know, it's 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 a couple of decades over which uh, the movement moves from being this small minority Jewish sect, really, the small group of Jewish people saying, no, I think Jesus was our Messiah, to, um, to now including all sorts of people uh, who didn't have to be Jewish at all. And so there's this explosion that obliterates all of the kind of social, ethnic, religious barriers that are usually erected between different groups of people to keep them apart from one another. 
and uh, it's this quite beautiful um, vision. Now, uh, we see a lot of that narrated through the book of Acts, but we also get a different kind of um, angle or insight into this story through a bunch of the letters that are then written and shared amongst these amongst these communities. And um, Paul, if you know the Apostle Paul at all, I don't mean personally, because he lived a long time ago, I mean if you've read any of Paul in the New Testament, uh, then you know he's a curious kind of figure. He's... he's um, He's a strong personality. <laughs> um, but we get this sense through his letters of, of what it is to be these communities that sort of are popping up all around the place, saying, why don't we give this a shot? Why don't we give this living according to the Jesus way a go? Let's give it a crack and see what happens. And um, if this is really the way things are, then, then let's see what it looks like to try and follow this Jesus together. And to experience something of the Spirit, this divine Spirit, together. Um, let's see if we can work this out. Let's see if we can discuss that together and reflect on the Scriptures together and uh, worship together and embody something together in community that would transform the way that we live uh, the rest of our lives. So that's the kind of thing that's going on then uh, in these communities and um, and people like Paul and others are then engaged in, in sort of letter writing, which is a, you know a, a function of the first century. Although it seems that Christians were very fond of it, because there's a lot of letters from these Christians over the first one or two hundred years. Um, these letters that are trying to help guide this process of figuring it out, and these communities, you know, that they're not sitting there with. With old and new testaments in their laps, maybe, maybe they've maybe they've got the Hebrew scriptures, and maybe they've got one letter, or maybe they've got fragments of the stories of Jesus. You know, they're, they're not sitting there with sort of with their three translations of the New Testament, um, having Bible studies in that sense, right? They are going with the scraps of the story that they've got to go on, and trying to figure out what it might look like to to try and do it, to try and follow Jesus, and. Um, and so these letters kind of function as a guide through that process, and um, and there's a few things perhaps I want to highlight that we that we see in some of these letters that I think give us some insight into some of what they saw as being um, really important in the formation of these communities and the sustaining of these communities, so that they wouldn't just turn into uh, another thing like everything else. And so. Um, there's a few few key theological ideas, if you like, that shape that shape some of these conversations. Um, one is that the the writers of these letters, whether they be Paul or or other people, seem convinced that you know if if we think about so much of the story as as, as this argument of, about what God is like, well, they seem convinced that the the the, the least we can, or perhaps our, our best starting point, is to say that God is like Jesus. So if we're trying to figure out, is God violent or not? If we're trying to figure out, does God um, cause me to suffer or not? If we're trying to figure out, does God want to include those people or not? All of the questions we might ask about how to discern what God is like and therefore how we should live. Well, what they seem convinced by is that 
our best guide to the question of what is God like is to try and understand the way Jesus saw people, the way Jesus treated people, the way that Jesus embodied the the kingdom of God in his very subversive upside down way. So um, that kind of claim that Jesus that that Jesus is you know, is divine. I think perhaps sometimes we get sidetracked into all sorts of theological arguments about proving the divinity of Jesus. And look, there's lots of interesting things to say, and we can read many books about such things, and I have spent plenty of my time doing that. Um, But what we can do when we end up in lots of arguments about that is miss the point of what they're trying to say, which is... Um, let let us use Jesus as our primary source, our primary guide into understanding the nature and character of what the divine might be like. And so all of the things that we talked about in the last episode about Jesus' way of embodied the kingdom, well, that's telling us about what God is like. And if Jesus rejects status and power and kingship and, and, and the kind of um, authority, wealth, and, and status that could have rightly come his way. Well, then that tells us not just that he did that to sort of show us what we should be like, but he also did that to show us what God is like. So God's not particularly interested in God's own status <laughs> and power, um, but in service and in seeing other people flourish and be loved and whole. Uh, and so one of the things we sort of see here, and I think we see this really clearly in a number of the letters, is that theology itself is actually in service of community and relationship rather than the other way around. So I guess what I mean by that is that often what we're tempted to do is to think that we need to get all of our beliefs right. And really the communities that we form are just to help us uphold those beliefs. So, you know, I, to, to, to be a good religious person, to be a good Christian, perhaps, I need to believe a certain set of things, and I need a community around me to keep helping me to believe those things um, so that I don't stop believing them. Because I think it's kind of almost the exact opposite way around to that, which is that um, the, the, the beliefs, the theology there to serve the kind of communal life that we have together, the way that we uh, relate to one another. And, and you see this, you know, in... In a number of Paul's letters, for example, you, and, and those attributed to Paul, you see him, for example, write a bunch of chapters on some quite dense theology. Romans is a perfect example of this. 11 chapters of really dense theology um, that you're tempted to think that's the point, but it's not the point. The, the point is to sort of do all of that theology so that he can get to a point in the letter where he says, right, therefore, this is, you know, in, in light of all of these things that I've said, Here's the point, and then he goes on to talk about how we should see one another, how we should see ourselves, how we should treat one another, how we're all part of the same body, and nobody's higher than the. You know, he he uses his theology of the Jesus story to serve community flourishing and wholeness and relationship, rather than trying to batter everyone over the head with the things they ought to believe, in order to sort of be right. The emphasis is here not on rightness, but on relationship and flourishing. Uh, one of the other things that we see in in these letters is this emphasis on transformed ethics, right? Which is to do with our behavior, which is to do with how we live and what we value. And I mean, there's all sorts of things we could say about that, but what we do see is the radical emphasis on humility and 
this ethic of self that's grounded in self-giving love. So uh, rather than um, an ethic that is based, again, in sort of setting up a, look, I've made a list of 100 things that are, that are right to do and 100 things that are wrong to do, and let's all try and do the things on the right list. There is instead this sense that no, we, we ground our ethics in a in a in a love that is received first from God, because God is the grounds of self-giving love. So when we talk about self-giving love, we're not just talking about um, giving away our own life and ending up sort of trodden down and exhausted. We are first recipients of this self-giving love from God. And, and this is the invitation of the Christ to participate in the receipt of love, of self-giving love from God. But then for that to transform our ethics and behavior so that the way we then go about making decisions, the way that we relate to one another is shaped by that same love. And so this means because it's a self-giving kind of love that there's this profound emphasis on humility and, um, and that... Again, now now that the story has kind of spread into the Greco-Roman world, this is a this is a very sort of controversial and radical thing because no one was really emphasizing the kind of humility story, <laughs> at least not in the way that we see in these early Christ followers. So, um, what we also see building on this, I think, is this emphasis on creating space for authentic transformation. So. Um, what the writers of the New Testament letters seem really intent on encouraging us with is this idea that we can open up in some way to some kind of experience, some kind of um, something divine, that this same divine spirit that was present in Jesus is present somehow also in us uh, and in all um, who would just pay attention, right? Who would open their ears and eyes and senses to what is already lying present within them, and um, and that's the grounds then for authentic transformation. So rather than this kind of um, setting up of an ideology to strive towards, rather than the setting up of a whole set of rules to govern our behaviour, instead it's no we we open ourselves up, grounded in this sense of love and an experience of the spirit. Um, to allow ourselves to be authentically transformed rather than just performing holiness for others, performing holiness for God, or even performing holiness for ourselves. And so, I mean, I, I think this is one of the most beautiful and, and, and challenging things of the whole New Testament is that Jesus and then the followers of Jesus are entirely uninterested in some kind of performance of holiness for others, for God, or for self. And instead, that stuff is completely disrupted and stripped away and instead a space is created for participation in an authentic kind of transformation uh, that um, that unfolds something in us from the ground up. Um, right, the last thing I want to say about all of that here before I make a few final reflections is that what we see in these church communities is not a perfect embodiment or understanding of the Jesus story. We see a continuation of the narrative of experimentation, of argument, and of trying to work things out. And so there's this continued experimentation of theology, of belief, and of practice. Like, how, how do we actually live? 
and um, and the letters are doing this as well. They're saying, okay, you're, you're facing this kind of situation here. You can almost see the authors thinking their way through the situation, right? So they're like, right, you've got you've got this situation you're dealing with. Let me think here and and write about Jesus, and see if that helps us come up with what we might do in this situation, with how we might innovate, with how we might uh, decide what we should practice, what we should do, uh, how our beliefs should reshape us, and how our beliefs themselves should be reshaped, and uh, and so. Again, it's it's not a setting in stone for all time as much as it is an invitation to continue in that process of innovation and experimentation in light of the story of Jesus. And so in hindsight, we can see, oh, look, they, they, there's probably some things they didn't get as right as they could have. Um, you know, there, there's probably there's some there's some stuff on slavery in the New Testament that we now could probably look at and say, maybe they couldn't even conceive of it given the world that they lived in, but now we can see much more than they could see then. And if we're going to continue to innovate in, in light of uh, the Jesus story, then we're going to go further than someone like Paul did in the New Testament on slavery. We're going to go further than someone like Paul did uh, in the New Testament on women and on all sorts of other marginalized people and people who might be excluded from the story. And so there's this continued uh, invitation to work it out, to participate in the ongoing life of the church uh, uh, a converse, in a conversation about how the Jesus story transforms the way that we live, the way that we relate to each other, and the way that we practice our spirituality. So um, I think that's kind of exciting. I think that's really interesting. And it means instead of getting stuck with these very static, concrete things, we are grounded in a story, we're grounded in Christ, we're grounded in this experience of the Spirit, but we're not um, stuck within these concrete borders that are immovable, but we are invited to continue wrestling, talking, experimenting, figuring it out in our context here and now. And that has all sorts of implications for all sorts of conversations we might want to have about uh, what church community looks like, about what spirituality looks like, about um, some of the doctrines that the church has since entrenched, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, around sort of uh, around hell and, and, and punishment and God as this kind of, you know, a reverting back to the God as, as angry um, punisher rather than self-giving love. You know, we, we are permitted to continue uh, innovating away from those ways of seeing God. Um, and that can transform all sorts of ways that we think about uh, ethical considerations as well and sexuality and all sorts of all sorts of stuff that's, that's really important to the life of the church in the 21st century. Right. So, so that's what we've got. We've got this big story, this big, long, ongoing conversation, uh, a wrestle about what God is like and of this community uh, that has wrestled with what God is like, with what humanness is about, with what's most truly real. And this emergence of of a language and of a story and of a tradition um, and ultimately of the Christ figure who becomes central to our to a reshaping of our life and spirituality. Uh, so what does all of this mean for us now? Well, I, perhaps I've already said a few things in relation to that, but perhaps three things to finish with. To re-emphasize, one, one is that when we participate in self-giving love, we are participating in that which is most fully real, 
Um, now, of course, that's kind of a grand abstract statement. The challenge, the invitation is to say, what does self-giving love look like in my context, in my time, in my situation, in my life, with my family, in my workplace, um, with the people around me in my community? What does self-giving love look like here and now? What does it mean to be a community that embodies that together uh, to help us be reshaped into those kinds of people? How can our worship practices, our prayer practices, our other spiritual practices, how can our communal life, our Eucharist, you know, how can all of those things function in such a way to help us more fully and deeply understand what it is to participate in self-giving love? I think, I think that's a beautiful challenge and invitation to us. I think one of the other things that um, that we are challenged to see in, in this story is, and I've mentioned this already perhaps, but that to live differently in the world in light of Jesus is not a matter of effort or performance, but is said to be something that is empowered or enlivened by, by the divine, by the divine spirit. In which case there's a kind of grace to it, which is beautiful. It's It's... It's a, an invitation laced with beauty and grace rather than with um, with weight and heaviness and oppression. So uh, whenever you're feeling a sense of shame, guilt, or weight that seems unhealthy, then it's pretty likely you're not... Um, you're not tuning into what God is wanting to say to you in that moment, but you are experiencing something of the way in which religion and its institutions can so easily um, manipulate us into feeling those feelings. So, uh, and not just religion, I just think that the human experience, we, we do that to ourselves. Uh, so lastly then, and, and it kind of in relation to that, you know, most of... Most of what we take for granted in life, in terms of the way things are and the way things must be, um, well, I think I think the biblical narrative asks us to think again. We tend to live our lives thinking, well, there's just a way that things are, and yet whether it be the prophets, whether it be Jesus, and whether it be the followers of Jesus in the first century challenge us to say, what if we were to ask the question, do things have to be that way? Um, is there a different way to live? Is there a different way to build our lives together? And um, and so Jesus, you know, continue, I mean, it makes him very unpopular, but what he, what he does is continue to confront those constructs that we build because, and in doing so, he helps us to see that, that in fact, all of the assumptions we make about the way things have to be are simply things we've created for one another. They're constructs we've built. And in that sense, then, they can be torn apart. And, and Jesus confronts many of those things and asks us to pull them apart and to pursue a different way. And that's that can feel um, challenging and maybe even unsettling, but I think it's also exciting. It's an invitation in, into an adventure. And, um, and perhaps in this time of coronavirus and or COVID-19, um, in which we are experiencing this profound transformation of the way that we are living and working. Um, maybe now is, a, is as good a moment as any to be able to see that much of the way the world functions is simply constructs we've created, that it doesn't have to function in all of those ways. 
And that although the season of virus and quarantine and shelter in place and all that kind of stuff, although all of that stuff will um, ease over time, perhaps this is an opportunity for us to recognize that we can reimagine the way we want to live and we can reform some new ways of being and some new ways of living and some new ways of treating one another and some new ways of engaging in what matters. Um, and I think that's, again, um, for me, an opportunity in the midst of what is a deep and difficult tragedy. Um, there's an opportunity here to see with new eyes. So, um, that's what I have to say about that. That's that's the end of our three-part story of the Bible situation. Uh, and we're going to be back in a couple of weeks with a new formation series. So make sure you come back and check that out. Well, um, I was going to say I'll see you then, but um, I won't see you, not with my natural eyes, but uh, I will sense you listening to the podcast. And uh, that will be beautiful. <laughs> uh it's got weird at the end. Anyway, uh, till next time.